Hello everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. Today is a bit of a private equity slash investment banking geek out session, if I can call it that, because my guest today is Joseph Durnford. Now, Joe, as he's called, is the Chairman and Senior Managing Director of JD Meriton Company, and they are a middle market boutique investment bank. But the reason I really wanted to get Joe on the show is that he has over three decades of experience in finance, investment banking, uh, investing, and, and corporate strategic planning. He has structured, negotiated, and completed literally hundreds of middle market M&A transactions with something like $5 billion worth of deals going through his career. Yeah, when I was at Deloitte, I was on the buy side. And my job was to help smart private equity guys retrade the transaction and take advantage of unprepared and uninformed sellers in the middle market. He's also a 2022 inductee of the M&A Advisors Hall of Fame and the contributing author to some amazing books that are kind of really in my wheelhouse around exiting. Uh, the first one is How to Run Your Business So You Can Leave It in Style. The second one is Best Practices of the Best Deal Makers. And the final one is Cashing Out and Moving On. So if you are someone who loves this crazy world of mergers and acquisitions like I do, if you are someone who is contemplating exiting your company in the next few years, and you want to hear literally from the horse's mouth uh, how an investment banker with 30 years of experience thinks about exits, sales processes, private equity, people like me who come in and do exit strategy and exit planning, this is the episode for you. That's why I work primarily with founders-led businesses, family businesses on the sell side, because I believe in preserving that entrepreneurial you know, zest for, uh, for life. So, welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Joseph Dern. Hey everyone, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. I am very excited because today we are going to get into all things deal making. We're going to go down the rabbit hole of building value and exiting companies. My favorite topic, as everyone knows. And today I'm delighted to say that I have an absolute expert on the show, someone who's been doing deals, M&A transactions, for 30 plus years and has even been inducted into the Hall of Fame, <laughs> the M&A Hall of Fame recently um, because of his service and his contribution to the space. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Joseph Durnford or JD, as we're going to call you on the show today. Welcome. Well, uh, Nick, thank you very much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be here and to have an opportunity to contribute to uh, to your audience. Hopefully we'll keep it fun and interesting and people want uh, uh, want to tune in again. It won't be boring. So as 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 we're as we're recording this, I was just joking beforehand because because uh, JD's in Puerto Rico. He's got he hasn't got the real Puerto Rico behind him, but he's got a fantastic looking palm tree. What, what what's put? Why are you in Puerto Rico? What what's that? Is that is that a tax thing or is that just a lifestyle well, thing? Um, the uh, I I love the mafungo and the people. Uh, the tax benefits <laughs> are are uh, just a, a another perk but uh certainly that's what brought me down here but i love being here in on the island the people are fantastic the weather is generally pretty good and the food is fantastic so i encourage everybody to, if you haven't been to puerto rico come on down for a visit it's a wonderful place there you go I, I have a few friends who have done the whole entrepreneurship thing down there mainly for the tax piece i think more than anything else and the incentives but i mean let's kick off with that a little bit because i um i just got back from dubai and uh where 
as in my family, my, my wife and my two young daughters, I think we're going to move there in the next 18 months. For the same reason, actually, because not certainly I mean, the lifestyle piece is part of it, but there's, there's, there's massive changes going on. I think entrepreneurship is becoming more global and more nomadic to some extent. And you've got this idea that you don't have to be in one location. What, what are you seeing in, you know, as you work with lots of different business owners and things like that, are you seeing a bit of a transition to that or are you still working quite, you know, in the traditional business space? Uh, no, I'm, I'm seeing a much more distributed uh, you know, entrepreneurial world uh, that uh, we're living in today, particularly here in, in Dorado, Puerto Rico. Everybody seems to be a, an entrepreneur of some sort, whether it's a crypto entrepreneur, an e-commerce entrepreneur, uh, some legal entrepreneurs. There's there's lots and lots of entrepreneurial energy here in uh, in Puerto Rico. Uh, amazing number of business owners from the, U- the U.S. who have yeah, relocated themselves here while their businesses may still be in the states, but they yeah, create some interesting you know structures and transfer pricing uh, arrangements such that the the taxable portion of their business uh, resides here in Puerto Rico where they're not taxed or they're taxed. Yeah. It's the same in Dubai. Right. I mean, because we have in the UK here, you know, we have corporation tax at twenty five percent. We have capital gains that's anywhere between sort of I think nineteen and twenty eight, and then you have personal income tax on top of that. Dubai, uh, as long as you get the uh, the various visas sorted out in certain ways, it's zero percent tax on anything that's made outside of Dubai. Um, no personal income tax, no capital gains tax, and I think it's nine percent on money that's made within the UAE region. So it's when you do the sums, it's crazy. I just, the, the reason I bring it up to kick off is I think it's going to be interesting how people start to think about this um, transition of wealth, right, and how they have these capital events with their businesses. And then getting more, I suppose, wise to the options that people have around tax, because I mean, it's a lot of money that you're giving away when you think about the value you've created. And I'm not against tax, not at all, but I'm also, but I am against when it's unfair um, in terms of potentially how that is being allocated, particularly from entrepreneurs who do so much stuff to change the world. Yeah, I think that it's really tough to scale a business if 40% of your profitability is going to a partner that doesn't show up for work, you know, is only there once a year on the 15th and uh, really just, <laughs> you know, creates uh, regulatory problems. It's kind of like the partner who, who drinks a lot and comes in on Monday morning thinking he's got all the ideas, but oh God. He, he takes a big check and goes out <laughs> and leaves for the rest of the month. So, you know, what I found here in, uh, in Puerto Rico and others is... You know, entrepreneurs have figured out that you know capital's not easy to get. It's capital's you know getting more and more expensive, uh, and if you can retain more of your you know own uh, generated profitability, reinvest that in business, you can scale at a much faster rate. Uh, Warren Buffett's uh, famous for saying you 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 can't uh, you can't get wealthy paying a lot of taxes. No, and, absolutely, I, so, I get it fully, and I think you know you're right. Like. Um, entrepreneurs and it's nice to kick off with this i think because we are going to get more into the specifics of how you build a valuable company and all that sort of stuff but one of the points we're making here is um how you can leverage really right how you can think a little bit more strategically maybe about how you look at the resources that you have right and and i do agree that there's a competitive advantage around that that people have to understand um because like you know when you're looking at the margins in an industry in or the business or you're thinking about how competitive things are becoming as the the global marketplace becomes more accessible, right? You've got to take all those advantages to best effect. But yep. we kick off. Let's let's learn a little bit more about you, JD. So 30 odd years in the MA space, where did it all begin? Uh well, it probably all began when I was a, a kid and my uh, uh brother and I were asked what we want to do when we grow up. My brother said he wanted to be a pilot. I said I wanted to own the plane. 
and uh, you know, you figure out how to own the plane. Uh, it led me to being uh, in, in interested in business. Uh, and so I sort how of How old were you when you said that? I know you're joking around a bit here, but how old? No, no, actually, I have a very true statement. Really? I, I was about nine years old. My brother was 10. And, oh, God. I bet, uh, I, bet you, he, I bet your parents are going, here we go. <laughs> my, my, brother is a, my brother is a pilot, and I have once had a plane. So uh, we both achieved our goals, and uh, it, it's it's fun to dream, right? That's what life yeah. is all about. It's fun to dream. Uh, so the uh, unfortunately, along the way, my uh, my father passed away at a relatively young age. And oh, sorry I was, to hear that. Yeah, I was kind of forced to kind of figure out how I was going to make uh, make my way through the world. And my uh, my high school football coach was also the accounting teacher uh, in my high school class. And he said his brother made a hundred grand a year as a CPA. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of money, a hundred grand. So I uh, decided to become a CPA uh, uh, as a as a path to entering into business, learn the language of business. Uh, so that led me to uh, uh, Deloitte uh, back in nineteen uh, mid nineteen eighties. And where were you based, by the way, in the U.S. at this point? Uh, well, I was on an airplane most of the time, but I was based in Denver. I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and right. I love Denver, Colorado. But uh, you know, it's not the investment banking capital of the world. Uh, particularly back in the 1980s, it was uh, you, know, you know middle market cow town, and yeah, uh, you know, we uh, so we were doing deals, a lot of private equity, uh, buy side due diligence. We sort of created the Q of E at Deloitte. We were the leaders in private equity services and doing you know, QV and financial due diligence for, uh, you know, KKR and, and Tom Lee and you know, a lot of the guys back in the early days of the of private equity. And uh, so I, uh, I was privileged to be able to learn the deal business from uh, some really brilliant people. And uh, back back in those days, a, a data room was really, in fact, a room. Uh, we, you know, check into <laughs> hotels. <laughs> people kind of like, when I when I work with business owners, particularly some of the younger ones, and they've never heard of some of these these concepts before quality of earnings or data rooms or any of this sort of stuff. And they sometimes think it is a real room. And I, and I, and I joke and I say, well, yeah, you've got to, you know how you've got this office space, we've got to get a room and we're going to literally fill it full of bits of paper Right. And people are going to come, they're going to fly from all over the world and they're going to go into that room. So I've got to, and people go, all oh, right, really? No. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I've, I've been in those rooms. I've helped create those rooms and thank God for computers and technology because we don't have to do that. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's uh, much but, more efficient these days, but, but back just to jump in, because we'll, we'll go through your story in a bit more detail in, in terms of what you're doing now, et cetera. But, but the world of private equity back then versus how you look at it today. I'm just curious. Now, what are some of the, the key changes that you've seen in that, you know, 25, 30 years? Well, back in the early days of private equity, uh, it was really an entrepreneur's game. It was, uh, you know, fi finding deals, structuring them, you know, arranging the financing. And in many, in many cases, you could get so much leverage in a deal that you ended up putting no equity at all, took a big fee and, and, own, and owned the business. Uh, so and it was, like a leverage buyout type of situation? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, the early days of private equity were 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 the LBO days, right? right. And uh, yeah, barbarians at the gate and all yeah, of those great, uh, <laughs> great, great stories. The uh, and it, it truly was uh, like the, um, the the Wells Fargo uh, gold truck was uh, cruising across the country, but there were no guards, and you just loaded up uh, you loaded up your sack and you rode away with the money. Uh, it was uh, very much the Wild West in the early 1980s. Uh, some really creative, brilliant uh, deal people. You know, Henry Kravis is, I think, created, uh, credited for really having turned LBOs into the industry, which we now know as private equity. Uh, today, private equity is really much more of an asset management business, asset allocation, and much more risk averse. 
Uh, certainly a lot more equity is necessary to get a deal done today. You can't uh, you can't do 100% leverage and take a fee. You've usually got to have, you know, 40 you know, 40, sometimes 50% equity into a deal uh, before the banks will lend. And even in this market right now, the leverage loan market is all but shut down. So deal makers are, are really having to over-equitize deals in the current environment with hopes of recapitalizing them, refinancing Got it. them. So you're saying that the access to debt to put into these deals right now, I mean, how quickly has that dried up? I mean, obviously it's not fully dried up but in terms of that transition. Has it been super quick the last 12 months, 18 months? Yeah, it, it's it started it started with uh, the the Fed rate hikes and the uh, you know the impact that the that was having on the economy as well as just the general fear of recession. We in the United States anyway, uh, we keep hearing about the impending recession, the impending recession. Yeah. Uh, while while the economy still keeps chugging along, uh, inflation is you know sort of coming under control but not there yet. Uh, so with you know, fear does not make deal makers' lives easier, right? So when the banks are fearful, uh, they're you know you're going to end up having to restructure your transactions or reprice your transactions or walk away from transactions. Has happened quite a bit uh, in the last you know four to five months. People are just not able to get the financing necessary uh, to do deals on the private equity side, uh, which does create opportunities for well-capitalized family offices and strategic buyers who are, are, are more patient capital, who don't have a five to seven year. Yeah, they've window. got a longer runway to get the return. The, the thing I was curious to ask you actually in preparation for this is you've still got you know a lot of undeployed funds right? You know, that have been kind of, and, and this is over, over, you know, a number of years of the, of the PE firms raising, raising their rounds. Um, is there still not a situation where those funds have to be deployed right now? The balance may be more equity versus debt, and that might be a bit more, you know, unattractive necessarily, but as an investor, you know, putting X amount of millions into a fund that's not getting, you know, used that causes its own issues, doesn't it? Well, the fund managers are, are paid to deploy capital. And if they fail to deploy capital, uh, eventually those commitments will expire. But you know, most private equity funds, at least in the US, are 10-year are horizons, right? So uh, the private equity managers have quite a long time to put that money to work. And they're you know, their number one job is not to lose the principal, right? They don't want to, as I said, it used to be much more entrepreneurial. You know, people really weren't using a lot of their own money. They weren't even putting that much money of equity into deals. And it was, you know, let's just get a deal done because we can. Uh, today, when you're deploying 30, 40, 50% of equity into a deal and it's, you know, limited partners money, you really can't afford to lose, you know, money. Right, because if you if you lose money, you'll never raise that second. You fund. never get the funds. I mean, I remember there was a I won't say names, but there was a PE firm, a smaller firm I was working working for in London, and I was again the CEO of one of the um, invested businesses. Um, and I remember how much focus there was on raising the second fund. They were a small firm, and they'd raised their first fund. They deployed some of it. A lot of the investments weren't going very well, but there was so much emphasis on that second fund. Right. And they were so worried about everything you just said, you know, in terms of like, you know, if we don't deploy the capital, we're not going to get this. If we make a mistake, it's going to look like this. It was crazy. And, and I suppose just for everyone listening to this, if a PE firm, you know, doesn't get a strong track record or they're early and they have some really bad misses, let's call it that in the, in the first fund, what normally happens? Well, if they um, underperform 
uh, in their first fund, they typically won't be able to raise a second fund. It, you know, it's a it's a performance driven business. Um, however, a lot of the smart guys uh, they raise their second fund before their first fund is all that mature, right? Yep. They'll deploy a third of fund one with commitments, maybe to uh, deploy another half, and they're out raising. That's what these guys are doing. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, be, being in the fund management is pretty good business at the two and 20. They, they're, you know, if you're, if you're managing a billion dollars, uh, 2% is. Well, that's what they were getting. Yeah. We worked it out that the four um, main partners in the firm were making a pretty decent salary, if you want to call it that, from just the management fees. Well, just from a perspective of most of the young guys who started working with me, you know, about 30 years ago when I started, uh, JD Ford, which is now JD Meriden Company, uh, some of the smartest guys all went into private equity, and they're all, you know, very wealthy and very retired uh, these days. <laughs> and I'm still in the game as an advisor. So, oh, there you uh, go. Well, I'm sure you've had fun on the way. Let's um, yeah, kick, kick this fine. around a little bit, and then we'll get back into your story. But um, in terms of the characters, and I want to ask a couple of questions here around the transition or the changes of private equity. So, how how has the typical private equity um, partner right? You know, firm principle or whatever changed from the early days to now. And do you have a sense of how many P firms now exist in, let's say the U S versus how many existed back, back in the time when you started at um, Deloitte? Yeah. Um, I think today there are about 10,000 private equity firms in the U S now 20% of them still control 80% of the, of the money, but they're, uh, about what a 10, long tail. Firms. What a long tail. And, and and how many of them are actually private equity firms? Like, because this is the other thing I found is that in the onset of all these people going out there trying to do no money down deals and you see all this kind of you know, good marketing, right? But no real substance. There's all these firms that are now PE firms, but they haven't got funds, right? right. They've got websites. Right. They, you know they, what I mean? It's independent like, sponsor. Yeah, they, they, exactly they right. Independent so, sponsor, right? They, that, they characterize themselves as private equity fund, but they're, they're, they're not funded. So, you know, when that that type of uh, model was originally created, you know, back in the early days of LBOs, that was pretty common. There were independent sponsors that really didn't have much of their own money and they were raising money on a deal by deal basis. And it worked out just fine when you could get 90% leverage in a deal. Uh, today, it's not, you know, as easy to do that because you got to put, you know, 40, you know, 40, 50% equity into a deal. And uh, if you don't have that capital committed, you know, you're less attractive as a, uh, as a buyer. So as a sell side banker, you know, one of the first questions that uh, we always ask, I always ask is, you know, are you a funded sponsor or a fundless sponsor? Uh, no one likes the word fundless, but it's very descriptive. Uh, now, <laughs> well, that's like, that's a nice way of saying, do you have proof of funds, isn't it? <laughs> right. It's a nice way of saying, do you have proof of funds? Uh, it's, you know, it's not to say that independent sponsors uh, don't get deals done. They, they do get deals done. And sometimes, the hairier deal, the hairier the deal is, the more of an independent sponsor you need to come in and sort of fix it, right? And because mo money doesn't really want to work, money wants, you know, it, money wants other people to work. And, got, it, uh, got it, got it, got it. It's interesting. You're but, an operating partner. You're one of those people who does the work. Well, yeah. I mean, I would go into these things. I mean, I'm not going out there raising the money or trying to kind of schmooze the investors. I'm going in there, you know, either assessing a an acquisition or I used to do turnarounds. You know, I used to go in, effectively, I would be like an operating partner, but then I'd be put in as like an interim CEO to go in there and actually get the thing working again. So I did that for, for a few years as well. Um, but the whole thing was interesting to me. And I saw different types of personas. 
uh, across the PE firms. Um, some very clever people. When I was at Getty Images, um, we had um, one of the PE guys running that who was a super young guy with a you know really hot MBA. Everyone thought he was too young to be doing what he was doing because he was effectively managing the investment on behalf of the um, the Carlisle guys. And uh, he was he was stunning, just incredibly intelligent. And then I've worked for other ones where it, it just feels a bit shady, <laughs> if I'm honest, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I was asking about the, the way it's changed because what I sense, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure this is probably just an over generalization, but I'm sure back, you know, 35 years ago, you had these incredible deal makers, and a lot of it was about charisma, personality, and, and doing really amazing things, influence, all that. Then there was a bit of a more of a professionalization of private equity, and it became a little bit academic and a little bit spreadsheety and all that. And now you've got kind of a shift back a little bit to deal making because you've got all these people coming into it saying they want to be M&A people and they want to buy a business instead of starting one. Uh, but right. some of those are kind of making stuff up as they go along. You see what I mean? Like, I know that's not everything, but I'm just curious about, that's my perception. I'm just curious what yours is. Yeah, you know, back, back in you know, the earlier days, um, very entrepreneurial, sales oriented. I mean, they they had great financial skills and, and great financial injuries around them, but the deal makers themselves were very much sales people, very charismatic, uh, could you know attract both the the deals and the capital. Yeah. Uh, it, it then shifted to uh, more of a uh, a financial driven, Wall Street driven spreadsheet kind of model that uh, you described. And today, I think it's kind of a combination of of you know financial engineers and salespeople. Although I think there's not enough good entrepreneurial folks still in the in the private equity business. It, it is very much an asset management business. Uh, I will tell you though, that most of my friends in private equity are very, very smart people. Uh, if you think you're going to sell the private equity and you're, they're not going to find something out, they oh, yeah. will. And they'll find out things. I often tell business owners, if you, if you can't afford a McKinsey study, but you want to know what you can do to improve your business, uh, try to sell it to private equity. They'll give you a very good understanding of all the things that are wrong with your business and why, uh, why there's opportunities for improvement. Uh, so it's uh, it, the, the you know, I, I love the private equity world. It's, it counts for about 40% of all deals that get done in the U.S. Uh, these days. So, you know, I, I have lots of close relationships, with a lot of folks in the private equity world. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I never try to outsmart them. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. So what I found with what I specifically do, and I often say this to a founder, I say, listen, wouldn't it be valuable to have someone who's worked in private equity for, you know, X number of years on your side of the table when you go into them? Because because I found this to be true, that the the ability to grow a business, even create a valuable business is very different to the ability to build something that is transferable and sellable, right? And, and that's kind of, I suppose, where what I do and what you do come into play. So let's talk about that. I want to get into that in more detail and give some value back to everyone listening in terms of some of the things you've seen. But let's go to the post Deloitte thing. So, you know, kind of when you moved, where did you go after that? Uh, well, I... I uh... I suggested to Deloitte that we start a sell side investment banking group. And they, uh, they patted me on the head and they said, you know, we're making a lot of money on the buy side. We don't need to compete with the uh, investment banking firms and, you know, head down and working. 
Uh, at the same time, I was recruited to be a CFO of a semiconductor company. So I, I went and did that instead of uh, staying at Deloitte, uh, sold that company to uh, National Semiconductor, uh, and then was recruited by Coopers and Librand, now Price Waterhouse Coopers, who in fact wanted to start an investment bank. And so I was part of the founding group at Coopers and Librand Securities. Uh, that was a you know, really great experience, again, with really great people. I learned a great deal from real, uh, you know, people who knew things I would never have imagined. And, uh, uh, but unfortunately, we were very successful and they wanted me to move from Denver to New York. And I love New York, but my, my wife and a child at the time you know, really had no interest in just seeing me get on an airplane out of LaGuardia versus, uh, you know, Denver airport. So <laughs> uh, I, I respectfully declined and they told me I didn't really have a, that wasn't a choice. <laughs> my, All right. My, so what you had to go to, you ended up going to New York. Uh, I ended up no. I ended up starting uh, JD Ford and Company. Okay, so so you so in other words, you went back to them and said, "I did have a choice, and yeah, my choice I, is to start." I, I created my own choice, right? So that's what entrepreneurs do. You create your own choices, uh, and that was a uh, uh, you know a long time ago, and and uh, been a lot of fun since then. Uh, my 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 partner at the time uh, was a transactional lawyer. I remember he gave me a card the day we started. He's uh, I was thirty two years old, and it, the card said. Uh, Welcome to the world of entrepreneurship. You'll never think about life the same. And he was completely correct. Uh, it was completely correct. And it uh, is funny. I joke sometimes, um, and I've had this conversation on the show a few times about the um, have you seen the Matrix where there's the red and the blue pill, that movie? And like once you once you've taken, you know, I think it's I think it's the red pill, I can't remember. But once you've <laughs> taken that pill, you can't see the world any other way. And I kind that, of think entrepreneurship's true. like that. Like once you've been there, like I, I can't be employed again. Like I couldn't, I, I just couldn't do it. I, you know, I was getting sacked anyway before the end of stuff because I was just too chippy, but I could never do it again. Like, and I think that's the same for a lot of people. They just find yeah. themselves in that position. So and that actually plays into the transition where entrepreneurs get to the point in time where they, they think they want to exit the business for whatever reason. Um, and then they start looking at the, yeah, what does that really look like? And in most situations, particularly for middle market companies, there is a period of transition. And uh, you know, whether it's a you know six month, twelve month, two year kind of transition period, and most of my clients really hate that transitional period of time. But, yeah, when when you've called your own shots for a long time and you've been in a leadership role, even if you really appreciate the transaction, you know, going to work in somebody else's organization, uh, pursuing somebody else's agenda is hard for someone who's been an entrepreneur. I can imagine. Well, yeah, because you've got a boss, right? And that's the same. I say it's the same in private equity. And I often say, you know, depending on what the structure of the deal is and, and you know, earnouts and all those sort of things and, and what position you've put yourself in the business when that, you know, that exit happens, um, you know, you are going to have governance around you, right? People have put money into this thing and there's going to be a board and there's going to be some structure. And if you're not used to that in advance, I remember, um, we did a number of acquisitions at Getty, around 40 odd when I was there. And we bought um, a real upstart company called iStock Photo, which was disrupting traditional stock photography. And the guy who founded that was totally and utterly nothing like the Getty culture, which was very precise and very corporate and all sorts of things going on, even though they'd say it wasn't, it was very much like that. And um, I remember that, you know, he didn't last a year. <laughs> You know, uh, I think we paid 40 or 50 million for this business. It was valued by a lot more when we sold the company again, but it was kind of like, you know, he, he, he just wasn't going to work in that environment where he didn't, you, know, you get to, you know, go around the boardroom table on a skateboard, <laughs> which is kind of what he was doing in his previous thing. And that it's an important point you make here because, and I kind of want to transition into this a little bit because 
you know, you've got, you, you spend all this time creating a great business, right? A valuable business, right? Defined by its financial performance, but also how you've built the, the whole machine, right? You've got that. But there is this real gap, in my opinion, of people getting prepared emotionally for that transition. What do you what do you think about that or how do you help that because obviously you're coming in at various stages and, and with these business owners how do you help them understand that or is it just really difficult well it's actually one of the keys to being a good effective deal maker over a long period of time is learning how to understand the human element of a transaction you know the the financial engineering is is the financial engineering uh that doesn't change all that much um you know market opportunity strategic planning you know, that is a matter of perspective and experience, but to really advise an entrepreneur through what is a challenging period of their life um, and understand the emotional elements that go into their thinking uh, is why I, I, you know, work with founders primarily. Now, we represent private equity portfolio companies as well, and then it's just all about the numbers. But when you're an entrepreneur and you're going through a whether it's a capital raise with an institutional investor or it's a sale of the business or a recapitalization of the business with private equity, there's a lot of emotions that go into that. It's, you know, partly it's, you know, who am I without the business? Uh, what's going to happen to my employees? Am I getting a fair value? Is the structure, you know, what, what, what's the hidden agenda? It's a lot of distrust in, in many cases. Uh, and one of the key roles that, uh, that I play in deals these days. Uh, they refer to me as as JD, the truck, the the tow truck driver, because when the deal goes into ditch, they call JD, uh, because I have a, a ability to really understand and empathize with those entrepreneurs, the founders, about what's going on inside their head. Uh, an example: we had a had a client uh, in the you know software as service business a few years back. He came to us. He had just been he was burnt out of the business. Uh, he had achieved about you know, 12, 12 million or so in, in revenue uh, for his business after about a 15-year horizon, just started making money. He was burnt out, thought that there were other things he could do with his life, and he just hoped he could sell the business for two to three times revenue for a SaaS company. And uh, we were able to uh, you know bring, bring a transaction together that paid him nine times revenue for that company. Uh, so you would think he would be ecstatic. But in fact, he was suspicious of, well, if they're willing to pay me nine times, what am I missing? Right. What am I missing? And he became a very challenging client to get through the, the due diligence and get through the whole negotiation of the of the contracts, because he just felt no matter what we told him, that there was something he was missing. And I and the deal went in the ditch and I, I was brought in. And I, his name was John. I said, John, you know, what you're missing is you're not focusing on what your goal was. Your goal was two to three times revenue. This is nine times revenue. You, you were focused early on on doing something else with your life because you were tired of this. This nine times will enable you to do anything you want or nothing at all. And you should you know, focus on what brought you to the table to begin with, as opposed to what are you missing? And it was that kind yeah. of in, in conversation that helped him get comfortable with you know pulling the trigger and and what he was what he was missing and why someone was willing to pay him nine times is that private equity firm portfolio company uh, he was the missing piece in their uh, 
strategy. We knew he was the missing piece in their strategy. Uh, and then 90 days later, they turned around and sold the overall enterprise for 12 times revenue. So, you know, he maybe missed out on three times revenue, but nobody else would have paid him. No. And also, but, you know, I just want to kind of draw a line a little bit under what you just said there, because it's super, super important. And I, it's funny, when I left um, private equity specifically to kind of just work with founders, I created what I call a methodology of, of how you do this. And remember, I'm going in a few years out, right, before kind of, you know, you guys are getting involved. And the first part of that methodology, the first pillar is called clear endgame. And, and then it's a reverse engineering. So what I'll often do is say, let's work on that number that's going to change your life. And I'll joke about it sometimes, JD, and say, it's not a billion dollars, <laughs> right? Sure. You may think it's a billion dollars, but that's not the question. The question is, you know, if I could write you a check tomorrow, that's going to change the trajectory. It's going to get you not thinking about finances ever. It might create some generational wealth. Now, the reason I do that, it's a, it's a qualification question as much as it's anything else, because I'll look at a business and say, okay, this is what your number is. This is what it's worth now. Right. Let's let's have a look at kind of then the market and all these different things. But what's important is um, quite often the whole bet is that we're going to beat that number. But because they've made a commitment to that number, and this has happened recently with a business where the number was around 30 million and we've just had an offer for just under 50, right? In in less than 18 months. But but the guy is still like, you know what, I'm ecstatic because my number was still 30. Right. And and he's not asking the question, oh, could it be a hundred? Could it be 150? I'm gonna hold on, I'm gonna hold on. Right. Because I often say, don't do that. <laughs> that is the curse of the entrepreneur, which is, you know, they believe that tomorrow is always going to be better than yesterday, mm. because if they didn't believe that they wouldn't be entrepreneurs. And uh, sadly, I have you know, a, a handful of stories where you know, we brought deals to the table that would have far exceeded the, uh, the clear end game goal. Uh, that people walked away from the deals thinking oh. that they would do better. I had one client that did that four times. Uh, on, on the fifth time he came to me and he said, he said, uh, you know, Joe, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you, you know, power of attorney because I just can't emotionally give up this business. And I know I want to get out of it, but yeah, you know, I, I just need you to do it for me. And I said, John, that's unfortunate because you said no four times. And I told you on the last time that your, your, your metrics were shifting, your customer acquisition costs were accelerating higher and faster than your you know, revenue per customer. So you're going to ultimately start losing money and you have passed the Rubicon and you are not going to be able to sell this company. And he's, so he ended up hiring another banker before he went bankrupt, uh, both as a corporation. Oh, so he, so he, he, he did go bankrupt and he didn't sell? He, his company went bankrupt. He went bankrupt and he went from having oh, I hate jets and Rolls Royces and a, and, oh. and, Ferraris and, and a heck of a nice lifestyle to, you know, being bankrupt. It was all, really all of you entrepreneurs listening to this, listen to yeah. this. Because <laughs> yeah. 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 I had a similar story where th th there was, I won't go into as much detail on this, but a business that was going to go for about, about 70 million pounds. The founder was going to walk away with about 50 of that. Uh, everything was getting lined up. He'd even gone to the Aston Martin garage to pick out his car, everything like that. And within less than 12 months, actually, there was some massive government changes, regulatory changes, right, which he should have seen coming, didn't. The valuation of the business went from that sort of 70 million down to about, I think it was down to 8 million, right, because there was a massive shift in the EBITDA because of these different tariffs. And then um, he got fined 14 million pounds because of breaking some regulations, ended up selling the business, right, instead of it being 70 million, sold it for 150,000 pounds. Wow, that, that, uh... Sadly, I mean, like it's it's eye-wateringly painful when you just think about 
like, you know, 50 million, I don't know about you, but that's pretty good, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, that's going to change your life. It, well, it's, sometimes entrepreneurs, they get focused on the wrong details as well. I had a, a, a transaction several years ago where uh, the, the gentleman had a really nice manufacturing business. He was the majority shareholder. He had a minority partner running a division for him. And uh, he was he was older guy. His management team didn't really like him very much. He was kind of a cranky guy at this stage in life in his 70s. He'd started you know, literally from nothing, climbing ladders and, and, and doing the work himself to having a business worth about $100 million with the real estate, et cetera. He had uh, you know, a patent on uh, one of the products he was selling. Uh, which he had shifted that patent to his his son who didn't work and was kind of an artist. And, you know, he he was just living off the royalties were about 300 grand a year that the, his dad paid him on this patent. So we had the deal, you know, negotiated $100 million. And uh, as part of the transaction, the patent had to transfer with the company. And so I got a call on a Sunday from the client saying, and we're supposed to close Monday, next day. And he said, you know, if I have to transfer this patent, and how is my son going to make a living? Are they going to still pay him the $300,000? And I said, you know, Bob, no, they're not going to do that because we remember we added that back into EBITDA. It was an immaterial number, but we added it back and oh. you were okay with that. Um, and, uh, you know, you're going to have close to $100 million. You could probably find some other way of compensating your son. Uh, well, he just wouldn't re he wouldn't give up on it. And he walked away from the deal. Um, oh. And then 18 months later, uh, I get a phone call from him and said, hey, hey, Joe, I'm I'm thinking about uh, selling the company. Do I still owe you any money? You know, if I if I do. And I said, well, you know, we're beyond the, the 18 month tail period. So technically, no, but I would be happy to you know kind of help you. And he said no. And he hung up the phone. 20 minutes later, I get a call from the buyer who was going to buy the company, who's a friend of mine. And uh, he said, Joe, are you going to be representing Bob? And I said, I said, no, uh, you know, Bob and I have parted ways. And he goes, well, that's good. Then I'm, I'm going to tear him up. And uh, in the interim, in that 18 month period, his management team had walked out the door, his partner had sued him, and the business had deteriorated substantially. And he ended up selling the company for about 25 million versus 100, still a decent amount of money. Mm. But had he just said yes, he would have had $75 million more. It's funny. Um, I was asked the question, you reminded me of something the other day when someone said, what is the thing that gets in the way of, of lots of different things, not just an exit, but like even, you know, a business growing to its potential. And um, the answer I said was ego, right? You know, this idea that, and that comes back to identity. It could also comes back to emotional state, but this idea that, you know, you have a expectation of something that you've created or an image or, or a story in your head. And then the reality of it's not true but you hold on to it. And that's where the ego thing plays into it, where you're not being rational about what can happen. And it does happen. This is, it's such a crucial thing, this. And again, I kind of kind of what I keep reiterating it for people listening is this is going to be pretty much the biggest financial transaction of your life. You know, unless you decide to go and do it again or multiple times, like some people do. And you've just got to have the right people around you, right. You know, to help you with this. And sometimes people get really like funny about it. It's like, oh, no, no. it's like, seriously, if you want to try and do this yourself, go for it. But you're going, some of the things that you and I have just kind of riffed backwards and forwards on, that should be hopefully warning. <laughs> That's, right, right. You're going into it, you're going into it like, it's almost like going to a country where you don't know the language, right? And it's probably quite prudent to have a translator or at least a, a, trans, a translation guide. <laughs> or something. No, that, that, that's a good segue. I had a client, uh, his name was Dan. He, 
had a family business and he had nine brothers and sisters working in the company uh, that he had he had taken over from from dad at a difficult time in the business. And uh, so he, he was the leader of the business and we were uh, in process and we were talking to private equity uh, folks and we were we were flying back from Houston after a lengthy meeting with a series of private equity guys. And and he, he says to me on the plane, he says, Joe, you know, I'm 100 percent certain that I didn't understand most of anything what those guys said. Uh, because I'm also 100% certain that you probably understood it better than they did, and I'm glad you're on my team. And it, it was just some, in some ways, just being a translator, right? Helping them understand. It is, under it, it is. exactly. Exactly. Means, what it all means. Let's do, um, let's do three things here, because again, I think it's it's great to. Uh, hopefully, people are kind of listening to kind of the nuances of how we're talking about this, because there's a lot of, I think, value just in the fact we're going backwards and forth talking about how many different things can happen right? When you go through this process, but let's do three things. Let's talk firstly about uh, getting a business prepared properly, right? What, from your perspective, what that needs to look like. Then I'd like to run through, there's no such thing as a typical transaction, but I wouldn't mind talking through, let's say a private equity transaction from your perspective about how that deal would be executed. Uh, and then the last thing I'd like to sort of talk about is if someone chooses to work with you or your company, you know, investment banking, um, how do you, how do you work? Like, you know, what does a deal look like for you? Cause obviously there's a percentage of retained fees and things like that. Cause people ask me that question all the time and I say, well, you know, it, it depends, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. So, so let's start off with that. So preparing a business, you know, to sell for the yeah, highest perfect. multiple, what does that look like? Yeah. Well, you're excited now, my... aren't you? I can tell JD, you're thinking these are good questions. I, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, all your questions are good, Nick. All your questions. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, one of my uh, uh, friends, who's you know happily retired now, he had a phrase to, for business owners that you know if you if you don't run your business as if you're going to sell it one day, you will never sell it one day. Nice, and love you that. could always Thank run the business so that even if you never want to sell it, you could. And what that means is a lot of preparation and that all of the, in, you know, the elements of a business, you know, you're, you're an operator. So, you know, that there, you know, there's sales and marketing strategies, there's supply chain strategies, there's, you know, accounting and finance, there's culture. There's so many things that you need to be good at or have people around you who are good at to build a viable organization. Uh, but, you know, to prepare a business for sale, um, one, I encourage you to bring in someone like Nick to help because it is a process. Uh, I encourage you to speak to an investment banker or two who understands your industry, who can kind of guide you as to what are buyers looking for in the marketplace today, uh, and then make those investments that you you need to make, but you maybe not don't want to make. So for example, uh, we work in a middle market and a lot of business owners don't have audited financial statements. Some of them don't even have reviewed financial statements and, you know, they get the data, they get cash in the bank and they're, you know, they're happy with the reporting as it is. Well, the reporting as it is, as an entrepreneurial business is not sufficient for getting through a sell side process. You need, you know, I highly encourage people to invest in uh, at least a review of their financial statements, if not an audit. Uh, an audit is an investment in the value of a company, as is having good financial controls 
throughout the organization, having a good, strong CFO, even if they're only an interim CFO brought in for a period of time to be able to make sure the books and records are, you know, in accordance with GAP and are understandable. And you have the ability to discuss your, your, your KPIs, you know, what's your customer acquisition costs? What is your, you know, what is your uh, sales conversion ratios? What are your, uh, you know, supply chain arrangements? You know, how, how are you, how are you managing uh, environmental risk? How are you, man- you'll be able to speak to the myriad of risks and opportunities. And if you can do that with data driven by good systems, you're going to have more value for the company. So that, that's a key thing that people should do in preparation is get your financial house in order. How important, just to go into the financial piece, um, do you think it is to do a quality of earnings analysis before or kind of, you know, through the process of stuff? Because my view is it's becoming more important. And I found that if you have, if you've had that done before you go to market, obviously there's an investment that gets done on the, on the, on the sell side. Um, it looks really good, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but, but do yeah. you think it, obviously, I don't know if it's crucial or not, but what, what's your view on that in terms of, you know, the business well, bearing the cost versus the private equity guys coming in or someone else to do that analysis? Well, if an entrepreneur invests in a quality of earnings, um, they'll usually get about a 10 to 15% premium of what they would have otherwise received for their business. So Perfect. that'll That's offset the cost of a Q of E even in expensive Q&As. And there's a lot of Q of E providers. You can get them for 50 grand and you can get them for 500 grand. It depends on the scope of, of the of the review as well as the scope of the organization. Uh, but in the middle market, uh, if you have audited financial statements, a Q of E, sell side Q of E is not required. It's helpful because a Q of E does look at a business differently than an audit does. Um, most of our clients... Uh, we recommend that they have a sell-side Q of E done before they go to market, primarily for the reason of identifying the good stuff that they might not think about. Now, I started my life doing sell-side Q of E, and our job at Deloitte was to come in and identify both the balance sheet risks that we could use to press down the value of a transaction. Because if you you know you have a, a if you've not accrued for warranties, right? Well, we can put a warranty accrual on a balance sheet, hits EBITDA, take the multiple, and you might lose, you know, a couple million dollars just with one accounting entry, right? Um, so the, the buy side QV is always going to identify the flaws, right? The buy side QV will also identify the opportunities, but the buyer's not going to tell you about them. I was going to say, you're giving yourself so much leverage back to that. such an important word in this world, when, you know, yes. to be able to negotiate things. And the other thing I was going to ask you, Anna, do you find that it speeds up the process time? Like, you know, they say a, a transaction can take, you know, anywhere from nine to 12 months if things aren't, you know, in order. But let's say you go through an exclusivity period and everything else like that. Everything's in place while that's going on. You know, you can get transactions done a lot quicker, can't you? You can get them done quicker with greater certainty. The yeah. the challenge you have if you don't have a Q of E and you sign a letter of intent and you've got you know sixty to ninety or one hundred and twenty days of due diligence ahead, you really don't know what the deal is until after the Q of E is done, yeah, because that's it. where the purchase price retrade is going to happen. If you have the Q of E done in advance, you're going to one identify 
things that will add value. You'll mitigate the things that would reduce value. So you'll handle them before you go to market. And then you'll pre-qualify only the best buyers before you enter into an exclusivity agreement because they'll, you know, you'll be able to say, look, I've given you a Q of E. Uh, you know, tell me, you know, tell me what the areas of due diligence you think are wrong before I sign this LOI, because I can tell you there won't be a retrade. You want to retrade, you might as well walk away. And that'll, you know, people who are in the business of retrading won't sign a letter of intent. They'll just walk away. So you'll end up with the right, you know, character of buyer uh, in the process. Yeah, right so character of buyer. The price isn't going backwards. It might be going upwards. <laughs> might go upwards. Well, we had, I can't talk about this because of uh, certain documents that I've signed, but um, where we did sell a send to Blackstone, you know, Blackstone, there were seven left in the kind of final stages of that. <clears throat> Blackstone came in and... Um, knocked everyone else out of the park <laughs> and, and the number to be the big dog and and the number that we sold for was about four points above what anyone expected so you know and when you're talking about a transaction that was over two billion dollars like it's pretty substantial so yeah but but a lot of that the reason i bring that up is a lot of that was around how prepared we were we actually we're going to go to market a lot earlier pulled it right off for about a year and and did lots of this stuff lots of this stuff, right. even did some repositioning. Um, and that's what got us, you know, a pretty stunning result above and beyond well, what um, Providence expected. Yeah. If you want to have a stunning result, you have to do the work in advance. You have to have the financial house in order. You need to have your management team engaged and, and you have a succession plan. Uh, we've got a deal we're working on right now, really nice business, highly profitable, great margins, but the owner just doesn't want to invest in his team. So he doesn't have a CFO. He doesn't have a number two. Uh, you know, he doesn't really have much of an organization uh, and he has customer concentration risk, uh, which are very sticky, but you know, he's, he's the man. And if he were, if he would just have hired a general manager a year ago, uh, you know, the multiples in his space right now are six to nine times, you know, EBITDA, he'll probably get a six. He could have gotten a nine. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. The right. I mean, like, and, and it's the transferability of the asset, right? Like, you know, I've seen that experience as well, that if the founder um, or the small management team is the bottleneck, right. In everything, you know, there's no, there's no value like, you know, and then it's kind of like an asset stripping exercise. <laughs> right. But right. Um, let's, um, let's talk about these, these, this next piece. Like I, I had three questions. The second one was about a, a transaction, what that looks like. I wouldn't mind, you sort of bringing the last two questions together if that's okay so so let's sure. say someone's come and engaged you okay and let's assume they've worked with me first so they've got a business that's prepared it's really good like we've done all the stuff we've got the right team in place there's two layers of succession there's no issues with customer concentration everything's documented all that right they've got and, and now we bring in your firm uh jd merit okay hmm. how do you work with that business and, and let's say it's going to be a, probably a private equity transaction. It doesn't have to be. Take us through what that would look like, just the steps and how that would work. Yeah, let, let, let me give you an example of a, a deal we did uh, back in 2020 and then did it again in 2021. Uh, it was a uh, an orphan division of an Italian conglomerate operating in the United States. Uh, the Italians had been funding. Uh, they had invested in an entrepreneur. The founder was still a shareholder. But, you know, he was kind of a minority shareholder at this point. The Italians had poured a lot of money into the business. They thought it was a dead asset. They didn't think they were ever going to be able to get out of it. They brought in a management team about 18 months before 
they engaged a banker. That management team did a great job of, you know, kind of building the pipeline of new opportunities, expanding margins, and really getting the business, you know, well prepared for sale. Uh, we came in and uh, uh, we're going to represent the division in in that transaction. Uh, we told them we thought the business was worth, you know, more than what they thought it was. The Italians didn't think it was worth what we thought it was. Um, but they said, you know, God, if you can get that done, great. Um, and of course, we we arranged our fee such that if we just met their minimum, we made just a little bit of money. I mean, it was enough to you know, keep the lights on, but not the not the home run we expected. And the number had we hit the number, we would have hit a, a grand slam for everybody. So we were in the process uh, of selling right in the middle of March of 2020. And all the strategic buyers that were interested in the company went in went into hiding, and they just they couldn't see their way of buying the company. Most of them couldn't even travel to visit the company because of the travel restrictions. So we found a private equity firm that happened to have been founded by one of my early colleagues. Uh, they were in the same city as this company, and they ended up buying the company for a really good price, about a five multiple of the EBITDA because they were able to do their due diligence. They were willing to take the risk. They liked the sector and nobody else was willing to bid. And there was certainty of close. And I vouched for the guys because I knew them. So that deal got done. I didn't, my, I and my firm didn't make much money on that. And I was frustrated because I knew that there was the strategic buyer that should own this asset. Uh, so a, a year later, not, not even quite a year later, we sold that company, I think it was July of 2020, because the Italians wanted it gone. So we took the price, sold it in July of 2020. In February of 21, I called the preferred strategic buyer that I always thought should have the company. And I told them that they should buy it. And they said, well, why would the private equity guys sell it after only owning it for a few months? And I said, because they're private equity guys. It's about your cash on cash return. And for what you should pay for the company, they're going to make a lot of money. So we represented the buyer in that transaction. And we you know, went in and were able to successfully, you know, convince. I, I was going to say a question on this, because I'm curious, did the, um, did the seller roll over anything? Um, <laughs> no, the, the, business seller, twice? the seller did not roll over anything. Uh, the found the founder, uh, he had about a 30% interest in the business, uh, but he he took his cash and, and left in transaction one. The Italians took their cash and left in transaction one. So it was just the management team that got an equity stake in the business going forward. I hope and they your mates, the private equity guy, sent you a very nice present. Well, <laughs> my my good friend retired shortly thereafter. So uh, oh. it was... They got about three and a half times cash on cash in 13 months. Wow. Uh, so it was a very good outcome for them. Uh, the management team ultimately became the successor management at the strategic buyer that bought them. So it worked out well for them and everybody made a lot of money. Uh, so, you, you know, the way, the way we work at JD Merritt uh, is we're still an entrepreneurial organization. So we try to be creative in our fees so that we align our interests with those of our clients. If we think we can do better than their their clear end game number, we're gonna we're gonna make more money by exceeding the clear end game uh, value that they expect, uh, which is how it should be, right? You want somebody yeah. who's you know aligned with your interest. Uh, 
every transaction with any quality investment banker or M&A advisor, there's going to be some level of retainer, whether it's a upfront engagement fee or monthly engagement fee. Good people don't work for free. So you should expect if you're a you know middle market company worth you know 50 million or so or above, you're going to be probably paying a hundred grand in engagement fees, you know, to manage the process. Because it, it, even if you've got a great pre-sale planning advisor like you, Nick, uh, there's still a lot of work that the bankers have to do to really do the positioning and the strategic analysis of where does the company fit. Kind of going back to the the SaaS company, you know, we spoke of earlier, where we created the value there was really understanding his business and where it fit in the marketplace more so than he understood where it fit in the marketplace. Yep, I, I can so, see that. I can yeah, see that. So that. That's what what you want to find in a, in a good quality investment banker and advisor is somebody who can see the market in a different way than you can see it as an entrepreneur that has different access to data and people that can bring, uh, you know, to bring you opportunities you wouldn't otherwise find or see. And that's what a really good investment banker uh, can do. And if you trust that banker, they'll guide you through you know, all of the various elements of valuation, financial due diligence, contract negotiation, employment negotiation, risk assessment, risk mitigation. Uh, hopefully, we'll in introduce you to a good uh, wealth advisor so that you can maybe put some, as part of the, the pre-sale planning, you know, if you're inclined to be charitable, put those trusts in place before going to market. Uh, when I first started the firm, my, my partners were an M&A attorney and an estate planning attorney. And we created a seven-step exit planning process. Step one was pre-sale planning and preparation. You know, know, where, know who you want to sell it to generally, how much you want for it, and where do you want the money to go once that happens? And, and, and what's, you know, what is your, your clear end game number? And then step two is, you know, where are you along that process? It's valuation, business valuation. And values change based on timing and market, right? So one of the things that's a difficult thing in the market today is sellers are remembering the prices that were paid in 2021. And they want those same prices in 2023. But those prices don't exist in 2023 because there's no leverage available in the marketplace. So values have compressed. So it's, you know, there are windows of opportunities and doors that'll close in your face. Uh, so patience is also a virtue in the deal business. I once represented a building contracting, building products company in September of 2008. I remember being in New York. He calls me and says, you know, Joe, you know, do you think that what's going on with Lehman Brothers is going to have an adverse effect on the sale of my business? And I said, I said, you know, I, I think it's a little too early to tell, but probably not. Well, 10 years <laughs> later, when we finally sold his company, uh, you know, in 2018, we were finally able to sell that company as he went through the valley of death in 2009, 10 and 11, and then had to rebuild his business over a long period of time. So, you know, there are there are things that happen to uh, to businesses that are out of control, and it's usually the uncontrollable thing that kills you. Uh, we've done a, a couple of consolidations in the corporate travel space. Uh, one of my early clients is still running a very nice business in that space. And they were in market to sell the business for you know, nearly a billion dollars in uh, in December of, of uh, 2019. 
uh, their advisor or banker said, well, you, if you just hold out, we can get you a little bit more. Well, then March 2020 happened and their EBITDA went from 100 million to zero, to zero. And the uh, the banks now own that business. The management team is still earning their way back. And it's, you know, they've, they've recovered from uh, the pandemic, but the pandemic almost wiped them out and it did kill their deal. Uh, I've had, you know, 9-11 killed deals. The invasion of Crimea killed deals. You know, the invasion of Ukraine killed deals. The things that you can't control are going to, you know. They're going to get you. Well, and, get and this is why I think, you know, and, and the, if you think about it now, the pace of change that we're seeing in the world, driven a lot by technology, but not always, right? And there's a lot of different things that are happening, macro environment around, you know, economics as well as social change. And, I, and it's funny because I have people come to me and they say, oh, you know, I want to sell my business in 10 years or something like that. And I'll say, yeah, but in 10 years time, the world's going to look very different, right? Like, you know, a real estate agent might not exist, you know, in 10 years time, right? Because there's a whole new people, you know, people didn't even know, you know, taxis, for example, were ever going to get disrupted by everyone else could become a taxi driver. So I often say that, you know, back to back to what we, 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 we talked about this kind of number like you've got to you've got to look at what you're building here and you've got to think about there's a point in time where you have to receive the value of the asset that you've created right all that work all that time and not that everything's about money right you know it, it's about the kind of impact as much as anything else but there's a point where and the reason i made the transition and the main reason i made the transition sort of more into that world is because i saw so many entrepreneurs not getting what they deserved right? In my opinion. And that came from my yeah. dad and a few other things. And that's why I think the stuff that we do is super important. And people just have to understand that, you know, if you're going to put your life into this journey, right, you should, you should reap the reward of that, you know, to best effect. Which that, that, that is the fundamental reason I'm a sell side advisor. You know, when I was at Deloitte, I was on the buy side and my job was to help smart private equity guys. Yep retrade the transaction and take advantage of unprepared and uninformed sellers in the middle market. And I, as an entrepreneur myself, I never really felt good about that. And my idea was if we could just educate the sellers about the things that they can control and the things that they can do in advance of a transaction, then they'll reap the rewards of that effort and risk that they took and and the private equity guys will get a better company as a result or the strategic company buyer will get a better company as a result employees will have a better experience as a result so you know that's why i work primarily with founders led businesses family businesses on the sell side because i believe in preserving that entrepreneurial you know zest for uh for life the uh uh thing I would tell you about, you know, selling a business or, you know, scaling up is business model matters and how it fits into the world matters. So if you have a, an excellent business model, like your Uber, right. And you're going to disrupt something. Well, that was a great idea for Uber to disrupt the taxi, the world of taxis. 
I still love the a London taxi though. There's nothing like a London taxi. <laughs> well, that's why they still exist, you see. <laughs> exactly. Because their business model is that they have extremely well-trained, very knowledgeable drivers with delivering a unique experience, an experience that cannot be delivered by somebody who recently moved to London and is relying on, you know, Google Maps or Waze or whatever to figure out how to get you you know, from where you are to where you want to be. A London cabbie knows the streets and you just love the experience. So and that business model is sustainable. Well, the thing you've got to understand, and, and I think we'll finish with that because it's a, it's a fun place to finish, uh, is that you've got to be tolerant of a certain language as in profanities and all that, because if you get the right sort of East London, <laughs> like, you know, um, driver, they, they, they're going to give you an education, not just in terms of where you drive around. So, hey, listen, um, character, character, this has been fun. We could go backwards and forwards with war stories and all sorts here. I think what I want to say um, as we as we finish things up is if anyone was kind of wondering what someone who gets inducted into the m and Hall of Fame uh, sounds like and potentially looks like with a nice palm tree behind him. Uh, I think we've got a masterclass on this stuff today, mate. It's been really, really good. I mean, it's it aligns a lot with the stuff that I've been exploring over the last sort of four or five years since I left private equity. But the thing I like about it is is the, the balance and the, and the way that you kind of approach this. There's a lot of humility in how you describe this stuff, JD, which I think is super important here because a lot of the um, entrepreneurs that I've worked with, they kind of they kind of think there's this arrogance in private equity. It's this kind of, you know, secret society of stuff and whatever else and kind of investment banking's kind of in the same thing. But hopefully people who listen to this episode can realize that, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. And actually all we're trying to do, right, is, is trying to help, right, you know, get to people to the ultimate outcome. So last question for you, JD, where can people reach out to you if they want to kind of uh, learn about uh, JD Merritt or, um, you know, find you, sure. connect with you? Yeah, so to to uh, to reach me, you can go uh, to uh, jdmerit.com. That's j d m e r i t dot com, and you can schedule a discovery call, uh, or you can email me at joe.durnford, d u r n f o r d at jdmerit.com. Uh, or you can call me at 303-808-0256. I'll there we go. A always, phone. Happy, always happy to chat. <laughs> we'll make sure we put. I can't believe you put a phone number in. You, you realize that's like you're getting inundated now. That's like, <laughs> well, I, I hope I'm going to get lots of text messages and opportunities to talk to interesting entrepreneurs who are listening in on your show. There we go. Well, listen, okay. It's been lots of fun, JD. Thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, look forward to uh, collaborating in the future. All right, Nick. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, Click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.